comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The world we know is gone. No internet, no GPS, no text messages, no podcasts. In a world ruled by the dead, we are finally forced to start living. Everybody and welcome back to the Walking Dead TV podcast. This is part three of our Breaking Mad series. You may be questioning, wait, Breaking Mad series? What are you talking about? Well, if you were to head back into the archives and check out episode 21, that's where we first sat down and did an episode dedicated to Breaking Bad and Mad Men. Then in episode 94, we got back together to talk about the things that happened on Breaking Bad and Mad Men since then. And to announce with uh, Frank A. Rincon from Half Hour Wasted, our Los Podcast Hermanos series that we did for the final uh, few episodes of Breaking Bad. And now I, Jordan from Jersey, am joined once again by Russell Latham to discuss Breaking Bad and Mad Men and Better Call Saul, but mostly Mad Men and Better Call Saul, since there hasn't been any new Breaking Bad since last time we recorded. So how you doing, sir? Good. My my triumphant return, so to speak. I haven't, I haven't been on the show since... Since January. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we're kicking it old school. Just you and me. Yeah. To discuss uh, discuss some of our, f- of our favorite other shows on uh, the AMC network. So what do you want to start with? You want to, and what we should say to, to listeners, we're going to, I guess, probably try and keep the Mad Men and Better Call Saul talk mostly separate. We'll probably mix them up towards the end. But there's going to be spoilers for Mad Men, Breaking Bad, and Better Call Saul. So you have been warned, but... Uh, you know, if you just want to listen to one show or the other, I'll probably put in the uh, the show notes when when our discussions begin and end, if I remember to do that. But uh, there will be spoilers, but if you just want to listen to one show or the other, that should be available to you as well. Let's start with Mad Men. Uh, Mad Men just wrapped up its final season this year. How long did you cry after it ended, Russ? Not too long. Uh, <laughs> it It's funny. I, uh, I, I miss it. You know, I, I think it was a good time for it to go. I think it had a good run. And I was I was happy with it. I was. It's funny. We we emailed each other after after the finale happened. But if it wasn't for probably that last, what would you say, forty five seconds? I I think I might have like punched my TV. Um, <laughs> and it's amazing how it literally went from being something to make me that angry to being utterly and completely brilliant in a span of like fifteen seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we're jumping to the end, but I, I uh, that that was kind of how that summed up the end. And so, like, once I kind of made peace with that part of it, I, I, I felt really good. I felt like uh, I, I felt like it was one of those shows. I, I hate to compare it to The Sopranos because I think it, it was a little I wasn't dissatisfied with The Sopranos ending. And I won't, I won't spoil that here, but I felt like it had enough closure with Mad Men that I felt like, you know what, uh, this is I'm good. Like, like I feel, I feel satisfied with this. I feel like they they accomplished what they set out to do, you know, back when the show first started. 
And, and it's not surprising that it would share some similarities with the Sopranos finale, since Matthew Weiner, the, the creator of Mad Men, came from that show. He was a writer there. But I, I'm also satisfied with the finale, which was titled Person to Person and was uh, written and directed by Matthew Weiner. Um, it, it was a weird episode, but you could say that about a lot of Mad Men episodes. Like, yes, many of them were just, that's a Mad Men episode, and then every three or four episodes you'd get something that was just completely out of left field and was just playing around with either the structure or with just what you thought the show was or just doing its own thing, going to focus on a tertiary character for most of the episode or something. But it was weird. I know you and I had kind of differing interpretations of that very end scene, although it, it turned out uh, you were you had the correct interpretation, as uh, Matthew Weiner has come out and said. But I still liked it, even though I kind of had a different reading of it. For anybody who doesn't maybe remember off the top of their head, uh, you know, the episode has Don going to that commune in California and kind of trying to get in touch with himself after he's kind of stripped himself or has been stripped of by other people more or less all of his material possessions over the course of the last few episodes. And he's just kind of, you know, chanting and, you know, sitting cross-legged on the side of a cliff and then the, he smiles, and the episode ends with the I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke commercial from the 70s. And I, I was like, I, 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 why I wasn't angry with the episode before that shot, before that final commercial as, as part of the episode, I thought it, I, I still thought it made the whole thing work even better. Like, it was just, it wasn't something I would have ever predicted that, oh, of course the show will end with, you know, a Coca-Cola commercial, but in retrospect... That's the perfect way for Mad Men to end. Like, it is, I mean, it's the most iconic commercial of all time, arguably, or at least, you know, top five or top ten or something. Sure. And because it's so tied, you know, the, the Coca-Cola account, trying to get the Coca-Cola account, McKay and Erickson, like, th these, these tendrils run through, if not all of the show, a large section of the show, even if they're mostly in the background. And just for it to end that way with this kind of cynical yet, not view on commercialism and advertising and the character of Don all kind of wrapped into a 30 minute or 30 second Coke commercial, just kind of perfect. Yeah. And if the more I started thinking about it, the more telegraphed it really was. I mean, they kept telling, you know, Don, don't you want Coca-Cola? Don't you want to do Coca-Cola? And then when he was off on his vision quest at the end of, of the season, um, you know, even Peggy said, I'm not worried about Don. He'll be back. This is what he does. He always does this. He goes away. <laughs> he does what he does. He, he'll We've be back. We've seen it four times throughout this series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, after that moment, I started looking back at the episode and I'm like, they told us up front how this thing was going to end. Like it was, it, it was, it was really cool. And, uh, um, but it, it was kind of a weird, like I said, this whole season was a weird journey and, and they took the breaking bad approach and split it into two pieces so it was seven in the first half that they they put out in 2014 seven in the back half which they did in 2015 which we've talked about that when we did breaking bad you know why they do that you know you, you know it could be contracts could be everything out you know there could be a hundred reasons why they do it short answer is it all comes down to money <laughs> exactly uh but it, it really felt like two seasons i mean you, you know the, the first half of the season was more about Don trying to stay relevant. You know, it's it starts at the beginning after because he kind of got ousted um, at the end of of season six. 
yeah, of his many low, low points yeah. that he had reached during the series, that was probably his lowest. Yeah, I mean, and he took his kids back to where he literally grew up, and I took it, not to go back too far, but I took it as Don finally brought his kids in on his life, and like, this is really me, this is really where I came from, this is what happened to me, you know, leading up to to what you know, and kind of a way for him to just kind of start to shed away some of the stuff that he'd been carrying around for a long time. Um, and then when the season starts, he's, he's like a pariah, you know, he's um, pitching stuff in his living room to Freddie Rumson. Um, and, and Freddie's like his proxy, which I thought was, you know, was, was, I, I like to see Joel Murray again. So that was really cool uh, mm-hmm. to see him back. But just from a character perspective, when you know, when you have to get help from Freddie Rumson, who you know is a very nice guy, but has many of his own personal problems. Sure, you know, you know, you've fallen in a hole of, of like I said, Don had fallen in many holes, um, pun not intended, over the course of the series, and this was just—it was almost painful to watch at times. Yeah, um, and I think definitely intentionally. I mean, I, I agree with you. These last two seasons or season, the last two years of Mad Men, shall we say? were strange and I never quite knew where we were going but I was I was totally cool with that it was it was a very different show from you know a breaking bad where you know what the end's gonna be one way or the other right you know the, the show starts with a guy finding out he has terminal cancer you know it's gonna end poorly <laughs> but right. it's more just how are we how is he gonna go out how you know how do we get there Mad Men was never really a show about the plot for the most part. It was a show about these characters and the plot happened around them and it was how they reacted to these things in their lives. But many of many of the things they had to react to were completely outside their control. They were not, you know, agents of their own destiny. In many cases, they would try to become, they would try to wrestle, you know, that control back to themselves in many very cool ways, like uh, some of the different times that they rallied to save the office or, or the firm or, or do different things like that. But because it was this character-centric show, the question for, at least for me, I don't want to speak for you, but was more of just, where do these characters end? What is the last thing we see of Peggy? What is the last thing we see of Roger or Stan? Or, you know, all these just different right. characters. And it, I wasn't even looking for a happy ending for most, for, I don't want to say for most of them, but for many of them. I just wanted to know what happened to them. And, and yeah. we kind of, we had speculated for years. I mean, honestly, the two of us, you know, how is the show going to end? We There's many conversations we've had, many emails, and just, you know, how far into the future would they go, or, you know, their future, our past, how, you know, what kind of finale would it be? We had different predictions on that, and I think this was pretty much the perfect finale that they could do for this show, but it certainly wasn't what I expected. Yeah, and it stayed true to the show, so the show was always yes. about the 60s, and now the show ended in 1970, but... It technically that is the last year of the you know that that's exactly. the year ten. Yes, you know, yes, of it. yes. That is yes. I always I I argue the same point with a lot of people too. But um, <laughs> but yes, it it didn't do the whole. Don Draper went on to do blah 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 blah, and in nineteen ninety three he died of you know a heart attack while blah 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 blah. You know Roger Roger Sterling. You know it didn't it didn't have that like captioned ending that told everybody what happened or a flash forward where we see everybody old and at their deathbed or anything like that. It, it just, it ended where it ended. You know, you knew, you know, what, you know, for the most part, I mean, there are a couple characters that we never really kind of got a real closure on. Um, 
Like Bob Benson. Bob Benson. <laughs> sort of, kind of. Um, no, I mean, we, actually, I think we got more finality on him than I had expected because yeah. they brought him back that one last time. I liked Bob Benson a lot. I liked that whole idea. Whenever they brought in another Don into the show, another con man who was yeah. you know, living vicariously through the life of another or, or you know, through through a fakeness in their own life, I always found that interesting. They even brought it back with the uh, the con man in the penultimate episode, um, whose name is escaping me right now, but the kid that yeah, Don, that Don gives, gives his car to. to. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, a lot of the finale was it, you know, as it relates to the characters, was them either accepting who they are or finally seeing the thing that's always been right in front of their face that they could never quite put into focus before. Yeah. You know, and, and in that case, I'm specifically thinking of um, Peggy and Stan. And right. w- what a beautiful conversation between them that was both funny and tear-jerking and sad all at the same time. Yeah. But just that, that, that dumbfounded revelation on Peggy's face of, wait a second, I do love you. How did I never figure that out before? You know, or uh, Roger and um, Marie uh, Calvay. Was it Marie? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was just, it wasn't, I was more happy endings than I expected, I got to say. Yeah. But all of them felt right. I'd say the only one that, that I had a little bit of questioning of, is this where this character would end up, I say, would uh, be Pete and, and Trudy. Yeah. And I, I, I thought it was, uh, kind of ironic so you know pete's dad died in a plane crash mm-hmm. um and yet pete goes to work for lear jet i almost was w- was thinking maybe they were going to go black comedy with pete um and he would go to work for lear jet and actually die in a plane crash like coming back or going you know g- going one way or going the other um and i'm glad that didn't happen because i mean i <laughs> i actually like the fact that pete was able to kind of reconcile uh the person he was and and get his family back because I think for a while we kind of viewed Pete as as I mean he started off the show as kind of a jerk and he 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 was he put his career above everything you know I mean you could argue the same thing for Don but Don Don's problem were his personal vices Pete's problems were he he would sacrifice and do anything to to rate to go up the ladder and it was about status and and he was never happy with where he was. Right, right. And, you know, he cheats on his wife, and he gets caught, he he gets tossed out, then he starts, you know, getting involved with the real estate person out in California, and um, and then he kind of hit that, re- you know, realization that I'm missing, I, I, my daughter's growing up, and I don't, I'm not even in her life, and, you know, I, I do love Trudy, and I did something stupid, and, you know, and then when... um. When he gets this opportunity to to, I thought that was that was a weird twist too with him, and I forget I'm, I'm trying to think of the um, duck uh, duck yeah duck comes back, and it was almost a ruse for him to meet with Lear just as a way to keep duck as 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 this recruiter, and and it's like it, it's almost like Pete got tricked into this job and it, <laughs> it, it but it it elevated his status and gave him enough security. That basically he had nothing to lose. He was comfortable with where he was at with McCann and, and just said, well, you know, it's going to take the moon. And Duck was able to deliver the moon. And, you know, Pete in turn was able to, you know, basically get his family back. So I, th- I thought that was that was touching. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had to they had to really work to get to that ending, but they put in the work. You know, it didn't. Yeah. 
it would have come out of nowhere except for the fact that they really did lay all that track, which was impressive and I think worked. But just if you had asked me, you know, three episodes before that, I would have never in a million years seen Pete and Trudy getting back together. Yeah. Um, another ending that was not so happy that we haven't talked about at all would be what well, happiness. Uh, you could argue the relativity of it, but Betty's ending. Yeah. Um, out of the blue, but again, not out of the blue, because you almost never saw her without a cigarette in her hand. Like, to be fair, most characters on the show. Betty getting terminal uh, lung cancer, and Sally having to immediately grow up, more or less. Yeah. And, and assume the, the matriarchal role um, with... Uh, what what Now I'm going to forget uh, her husband's name, but Francis. Uh, uh, what's his first name? Um... Every every first name that's stringing in my head is someone else's Henry. first name from the show. Henry Francis, like man, he got the raw di- deal, didn't he? I mean, he, he was did. he was never portrayed as a perfect man or a perfect person, I should say. But you know, he always seemed like a nice guy who tried. And man, did he get the short end of the stick there? Yeah, you know, just just that scene where he breaks down um, in um, Sally's. I guess I don't know if dorm room is the right word, but yeah, yeah. Um, man, it was crushing. To, to see that, and I mean, it was nothing he could do. There's nothing any of them could do, but to see Betty finally grow up in the last, you know, in the twilight hours of her life, even before she knew she was dying, she kind of finally grew up, which was amazing for a character who had been in such a state of arrested development. But you know, going back to school and just deciding, this is my life, and I'm. I'm okay with the things I'm okay with, and I'm not okay with the things I'm not okay with, and I'm going to make them better in these last few months, even if I know I'm going to die. Yeah. And and it's funny, because after the fact, I read a lot of stuff online where it it showed how telegraphed that was, and how she talks about, you know, her mother, you know, died while she was still a handsome woman, and, you know, just just all of these things, you know, the the whole cigarette thing, and, you know, just, just her... Wanting to stay youthful and and basically not you know die in a uh, you know shriveled old woman, uh, it, it's pretty it's kind of haunting. So I wonder if that that was kind of the plan all along with her. Um, and I'm, I'm glad again that was something they didn't belabor out. Like you would assume that she died, you know, probably you know a few months after the show ended. And again, we didn't you know you didn't see a funeral or anything like that. Like you knew what was going to happen with her, and they just kind of kind of let it let it go with that and even when um um when what's his face came back the 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 sally's friend from childhood uh oh yes played by matthew water's son but yeah his name i'm going to forget the, the creepiest kid ever yeah um. <laughs> yeah and he you know he puts the moves on her and she actually backs it you know again you talk about the the growing up you know that uh you, you know she she didn't uh um, Glenn, Glenn Bishop. She didn't. Glenn, yes. She didn't um, move on his advances. Where you could tell that she always was. It was kind of like this weird, kind of creepy thing with those two. You know, like she. I think she always. It's the whole younger man being attracted to an older woman thing, and you know, she she totally played that up. And then when it finally kind of became a reality, she was kind of at that phase where she's like, "Yeah, this is probably not a good thing for me to do." Yeah, you know, and like I said, you know, to go back to the idea of her being in Arrested Development, a child herself, and to have this child lusting after her becomes especially uh, complicated when he shows up and is, you know, a good-looking dude, you know, who is still totally into her, 
and she's at this weird crossroads of her life. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it that ended where it needed to end. I kind of wish we had a little bit more Sally. It felt like in yeah. these last two seasons or last two years, she got less to do. But maybe that's just me looking at the series before that through rose-tinted glasses. Whenever she was on screen, it was pretty much great. Um, I, I pretty much always love what they did with her. And I, I just always wanted more Sally on the show. And, and I hope, I, I can't wait to see what her career becomes as an actress because she just did some, some amazing things as a child actor. Yeah, I think, and, uh, I think unfortunately, you know. her her story got so entwined with Betty's. Like, yeah, you know, her, her story was she had to kind of grow up and, um, and, t- and take care of, you know, she's going to have to be the mother. Um, and, well, she's, she's the antithesis of her mother because her mother almost almost until the end of her days didn't grow up and she had to grow up right way too early right and and you know another revelation i mean you know don was going to take the kids and you know betty was like no you're not capable of uh, you know of 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 doing this and you know so i left the show with henry was going to retain custody of uh, of of the kids or they were going to live with another relative that wasn't don um and it wasn't because he doesn't love his kids. It's just Don's not capable of that kind of life. Like he's just not. It's just this just not him. And you know, based on where Don's at at the end of the series, Don is back to being the Don that we knew from the beginning of the show. I mean, he's just you know he's the same Don. He goes off, he resets himself, and he comes back. And I'm sure he was you know the drinking, smoking, womanizing, um, you know Don Draper that you know that. It's almost like I got the picture that he went back to McCann and became the Don that we knew at the beginning of the series where he was firing all, all cylinders. He was killing accounts and, you know, doing doing his Don Draper thing. Mm. Uh, so who else? So we got Megan, um, a character who is very divisive. Oh, I, uh, you know, all of Don's wives are very divisive on on this show. Yeah. Um, I like what they did with her in the end, though. Of you know her being this catalyst of Don losing everything, both by his own choice, uh, with the the million dollar check, and yeah. then you know completely outside of his control with Marie taking all of his furniture. Yeah, when, when he came <laughs> home great. and to the apartment was completely bare, and just that look on his face, like what the hell happened here? <laughs> you know, j- just and this this final year of episodes in particular with him just divesting himself of all his material possessions and seeing how he was still happy without them to, to whatever extent, like he, Don, Don's never going to be a happy person. Probably, you know, you know, at the, the, you know, at at his very core of being, he might find happiness at points, but he's always going to have these problems. But just seeing that they didn't get worse without his possessions. He just, you know, he's that hobo. He was able to, you know, find a new life for himself and go around. And then eventually, just come back to where he had started um, at McCann, which not McCann specifically, but advertising, I should right. say. You know, it was just this this great circle. But to have Megan, like, I felt like Megan tried. Like, Megan was, was, a lot of people seemed to villainize her. I didn't feel like she was actually a villain. She was just a person who had some level of talent and was always kind of screwed over by Don, either trying to help her and it screwing it up or trying to hinder her and it's screwing it up you know 
I always felt like she had a chance, and it just because she chose Don, or because Don chose her, because they chose each other, you know, her acting career was just never going to work out because of that. But at the same time, she might never have gotten the opportunity if she hadn't hooked up with him in the first place. So yeah, you know. But I mean, she went to, out to California on her own, and it it almost seemed like she, you know, she gave up the soap in New York to go out to California, and at that point, she kind of could have been her own person. And it just didn't work. I think she had a little bit of an overinflated value of what her real talent was. Um, That's probably true. So I thought I thought that was in, and I just kind of took it as once Don gave her that check, that pretty much she she probably just settled into some kind of comfortable lifestyle and never really went back to acting or had to worry about doing much of anything ever again. Right. Uh, speaking of people who got large checks, I loved Jones ending. Yeah. Um, now, she only got 50 cents on the dollar for her buyout, but just that moment of, so let's talk about her story. She, she meets, you know, she, she's done all the thing with the husband, and she gets divorced, and she has the kid with Roger. She meets um, uh, Greenberg? What's what's the actor's name? Bruce Greenwood. Um, Bruce Gre- Greenwood, um, who I thought fit in the show very well, was a nice little addition there for those few episodes he was in. And it seems like she's going to go this one direction. You know, with just this kind of life of travel and leisure. And then at the very last minute, they throw us that curveball of, well, that's not going to work out. You love working. Here's this this production company idea. And she just wants that second name. She wants it to be her and Peggy, which that would have been really cool. But yeah. then when that doesn't work out, and I think they it was probably the best decision for both of them for that not to work out, just that moment of her... Taking taking her hyphenated last name and using it to her advantage of the Holloway Harris Production Company. Yes, and and that's it was so perfect. Like all these endings were just so perfect, even if what they weren't what I expected. Joan doesn't need no man to paraphrase someone. I don't know where that phrase originally comes from. I just yeah. know it's an old phrase, but she never did. Right. She never will. She is just she is this strong. You know, I don't I don't want to go lean on the cliche of the strong woman, but she she's a strong person. And she has oftentimes thought throughout the, the, the run of the show that she needed somebody, whether it was Roger or um, her uh, Holloway, who's or, um, Harris, I forget his first name, but the, 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 the doctor. jerk doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, or Bruce Greenwood, who seemed like a nice guy with his own issues. She always thought she wanted those things, but she never, ever needed them. She, she was held back by the time. She was held back by the culture. Um, you know, in this male-dominated 1960s, but you know, her moving into the 70s as, as the head of her own company, you know, with her, you know, run by her own name and just her being in charge of everything, perfect. Yeah, and it, it's funny that she probably had the rawest deal of anybody. True, it, really. I mean, she became partner by basically sleeping with somebody so that they would get the Jaguar account or and and the dealerships to come with it. Um, so she was given this partnership, and she was always kind of just treated as like, okay, well, you're partner, but you're not partner. And and then it's she a had Scarlet Letter in many ways. Yeah, yeah. And then she kind of got a couple accounts and actually did a decent job of it. But then when they flipped her over to McCann, she basically just kind of got bumped back down to the bottom of the barrel again because she was a woman, and because I think a lot of people. At McCann just kind of saw her as, well, we know how you worked your way up. We know, you know, just based on typical male 
attitudes at the, at the time, you know, they look at her and, you know, her figure and everything else and just kind of put her in a, in a, in a category that she didn't belong. And it, it just really disadvantaged her. And then, you know, I'm, I really like, like you said, I like the way it, it turned out that she basically said, yeah, I'm getting 50 cents on the dollar, but you guys can go screw yourselves and I, I'm going to do, I'm going to be better for it after all. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to basically have something, um, that's my own. And it's kind of funny because where she made her name at, at SC, SC and P before it, it broke, it, it got pulled back into McCann was Avon. And, you know, if you think about it, Avon for, for many years, and I'm sure still is, you know, made its name by women being able to kind of work and do their own thing and kind of have, have some empowerment and start a, you know, kind of start their own little business and things like that. And then here she is kind of taking that concept to the extreme next level where she's in charge of it from, from, you know, back to front. Um, and so I almost thought for a minute there that she was going to convince Peggy to, that was going to be Peggy's ending is the two of them in her Which kitchen. Which would have been awesome. Sure. You know. Sure. But Peggy's end, I, I really, Stan's one of those characters that's just kind of funny. You know, he started out as kind of this kind of uh, apish, he was clean cut in the beginning, kind of this apish um, guy that just kind of cracked jokes all the time and, you know, wasn't super serious about wanting to do his job and just like to, you know, draw and smoke pot in the office and, and stuff like that. Talented, but not motivated. Exactly. And then, you know, we see once they're in McCann, it's like he finally feels like I'm doing what I like. I, I get to live my life the way I, I, I want to live it. I'm, I, I have a job that I enjoy doing. You know, I'm, I'm in a good spot. And he sees Peggy, who I, I think for a long time, he didn't even feel that he had the feelings he had towards her. And they're almost like best friends. You know, they'd call each other and talk to him about all their problems and stuff like that. And when he finally just basically told her to just shut up, do your job, and just be happy with where you think you you need to be and where you are and stop always trying to go to the next level. Like he, he, you know, he felt Peggy was always so like had something to prove. Like Peggy was always wanting to be Don, you know, she wanted to be the director. She wanted to be the boss. She wanted to have the staff. She wanted to do all these things. And Stan finally was able to convince her that that's all just a bunch of BS. Like you're good at what you do. Do that and be great at it and everything else will kind of come along with it. And then you won't have so much anxiety about everything. <laughs> and, and oh, by the way, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I loved. So I don't know if you've heard people discuss this, but there's been people who prefer the, the penultimate episode as the finale. And the, there's kind of two different camps of the show for me ends with episode uh, 13 or the show ends with me at episode 14. Peggy gets a great ending in both versions. You know, in the, the full series, she gets the ending with Stan, but previous to that, she had that great ending with Roger and the roller skating and the organ. Yes. And then walking into um, into McCann with the cigarette and the sunglasses. Yes. And the, uh, the octopus porn painting from, um, uh, oh, why am I forgetting his name now? Whose office was that? Uh, uh, oh, such a Burt Cooper. Cooper's. Yes. Yeah. She she walks in with Burt Cooper's um, painting. I mean, that was. I, I don't know that I could tell you which ending I prefer. Like, if you just had me pull one out of a hat and that is my ending from now on for her, either one is fine. That was an awesome image. Like, oh yeah. I mean, just take a screen grab of that. That's just it, just seeing her with with that look was just. Didn't she have the beret on too? I think she at the beret she had a very different um, uh, 
clothing, it was very bold colors and, yeah. and patterns, something that wouldn't normally be hers. I feel like we should give the plug to uh, Tom and Lorenzo's Mad Style blog, where they, they would do, like, every episode, they would do, like, a breakdown of the styles of the different characters and how, like, so much of the story was told through just, the, you know, the patterns on people's ties and the different things. They, they, they had a field day with that uh, that particular shot of her, which was so great. Yeah. You know, it was so, it was so the Peggy, the Peggy always could be, but never had been up to that moment. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we didn't get, we never got a lot of Roger Peggy scenes. No. Like, there's only no. a couple in the whole show. No. And how great was just that, that image of her roller skating through yes. the, uh, the empty office with him playing the organ. And it's funny you know? because that kind of accentuates just why Peggy needed to have this kind of, uh, comeuppance from Stan in the last episode because she was not going to leave SCMP and go to McCann until she had her office with her phone, with her name on the door, with exactly what she felt she deserved. And she was just going to stay at SCMP until they literally kicked her out or they got her her stuff at the office. Um, and it, and it was really funny. And then you have Roger who's, he just didn't want to leave it because that was his deal. Like Roger's all about legacy. You know, Roger, you know, the fact that he would go to McCann and it not have the name Sterling on the door anymore was a was kind of a personal hit for for Roger. I mean, the rest of them were like, yeah, whatever. I mean, as long as I'm getting paid and as long as I have my position, you know, sure, it was nice to have my name on the door, but I'll get over it. R- Roger wasn't like that. I mean, Roger, you know, his father started that firm with Burt Cooper and he's kind of the legacy and he, you know, he probably has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder to always feel like he had to kind of live up to, to what his father and Bert started there. Uh, and so it was just kind of interesting that, that that's, and he kind of had a weird journey too, where, you know, he, he, he left his wife, then he married his secretary and then she left him and he started, you know, getting into psychedelic drugs and sleeping with, which was always hilarious. Yeah. Sleeping with multiple women at the same time and just kind of like throwing good money after bad when it came to that stuff. And it, you know, Roger was always kind of portrayed as a superficial guy, right? Like, you know, going after the young secretary, hitting on the young waitresses, you know, going after the youth. And he ends up in the end with somebody that's pretty much his own age. I mean, Marie is, you know, maybe give or take a few years is probably about the same age as, as Roger is. Which is so, like, at the beginning of the, you know, the, the show, if you would have envisioned that Roger would have ended up with somebody his own age, that would have seemed so foreign. But ultimately, he was with somebody that wasn't really after him for his money and didn't really, you know, because she, I think she had her own means, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, he was happy. Like, he was just happy, you know, because he could be himself in front of this woman and this woman was being herself in front of him. He finally found somebody that... Um, they could just kind of hang out and be together with. And I, I just thought that was really funny. Well, and she was, she's also his equal in wit to a certain extent, like yeah. not, not so much to the funny. Um, and like he, he, when his wit tends to, you know, skew towards funny and hers skews a bit more towards biting. Yes. But all the women he had been paired with previously, like he could certainly have an argument with them and they can certainly hold their own in an argument but it was more just yelling, you know, Yes. him being witty, them yelling. And, and that's not to, you know, to disparage them in any way. He's just a very specific type of person who, who is very sarcastic and very witty. And Marie is not identical, but she has she can give as well as she can take in that regard. And to see both of them at the end, I think the final shot is them in that cafe yes. um, on their honeymoon. Yeah. 
you know, looking at the other older couple, to see them finally kind of both transfer into retirement, like retirement golden years, kind of more standard uh, Americana, you know, elderly couple. And not to not to say that either one of them is elderly, but you, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it was just him finally accepting that he could be normal, I guess, and, you know, kind of doing away with a legacy. Like, yes, he willed half or whatever it was of his estate to um, his illegitimate son, but, you know, it was just him kind of enjoying his life rather than caring about living up to his father's name or continuing his family name, right? Um, you know, with, with some young woman, you know, somewhere else in the world, and, and just finally kind of finding his peace that way. And it was nice, you know. The other thing I want to talk about is... Uh, the whole bit with the computer. So in the first half, oh, of, so going back to, to to last year with Ginsburg. Yeah. So the <laughs> yes, first, I, I wanted to bring this up as well. So thank you. Yeah, the first half of season seven, um, SCMP, because we talk about Harry Crane as well. The world's biggest slime ball. Yes. Out like yes. <laughs> um, but he convinces SCMP they need to they need to buy a uh, an IBM mainframe. They take their com their I think it was their break room or their common area or something like that. They wall it off. They raise the floor. They bring this mainframe in and the audio mix was so awesome because you always heard that hum like of the computer and apparently it's like being on the on the, the deck of the Star Trek uh, Starship Enterprise. Yes. You know? Yes. And apparently it was driving uh, poor Ginsburg crazy. Um, crazier. Let's be fair. Yeah. Cra- yes. Yes. Absolutely. Crazier um, to the point where he literally cuts his own nipple off and sends it to Peggy uh, as a gift. Uh and she ends up basically calling the white coats to come guard them off. Um, but I, that was just, just crazy. I mean, <laughs> just crazy. But the perfect ending for, for Ginsburg, you know, yes. who was always a loon, but a, a very entertaining loon. Yes. I just, I still have that image in my head of, of Peggy opening the box and being, and, and just being taken aback by this. And then Ginsburg saying to her, it's my nipple. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that was so, so strange. Gets so hilarious. And so, like we say, perfect for Ginsburg. Yeah. Um, and I guess that was the last time we ever saw him, right? He yes. never showed up in any... No, that was it. Yeah. Any return. Um, another character who we mentioned briefly earlier, but who also only shows up last year, uh, Burke Hooper. Yes. Um, exited the show. Although, technically, he did show up again this year um, in a uh, one of Don's many dream sequences. Yes. But uh, what did you think of the musical sequence that ended the first half of the season with him, and and his end in general? I guess I should say. I thought it was good. I mean, Bert is always—he's always kind of like a weird dude, you know. He was always kind of like—he um, was kind of a a throwback and a contemporary at the same time. I mean, his it's like a proto hippie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because some of his views on race and religion and things like that were very uh, stuck in the past and very. Um, I hate to use the word unintentionally bigoted. Um, you know, it's almost like he responded that way because that's how he was brought up to respond that way and didn't really think about it, which doesn't excuse bad behavior, but that's just the way it is. It's kind of like that nutty uncle that, you know, is racist, maybe an extreme uh, term for them, but maybe bigoted is, is probably closer to it. Um, Non-maliciously bigoted? Yeah, <laughs> which know. sounds... I, you know, it's an oxymoron. Yeah, which but, sounds you know. ridiculous, but... Um, but yet at the same time, you know, the whole feng shui, take your shoes off, I want the art to be this, you know, the, just that whole, like this balance of kind of these, uh, you know, these medieval sensibilities as far as, you know, people and things like that. But yet this contemporary look on 
you know, how people, you know, energy and, and you know, and, and things like that. But yeah, so he, he, he dies right after seeing the moon landing. Yes. Kind of beautiful. Um, because he, he always, I shouldn't say always, but there was a number of moments throughout the series where space or astronauts were things that were linked to him, you know, things he would say or things he would talk about. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of perfect. And then, you know, just that, you know, bizarre yet perfect musical sequence of, you know, the best things in life are free, which I definitely had stuck in my head for like a month after the, fin- yeah. uh, the finale that year. And it just being kind of, you know, Don was in a very uncertain place. At, at the end of that half season and for the show to end on such a strange note at that half season was kind of perfect, you know? Yeah. And, and and it very much set up the final half season with the best things in life are free. Don, you should not be so uh, connected to your material worth. You know, you keep fighting for it, you keep gaining more of it, and it's not making you any happier. You know, you just need to be, you need to be okay with yourself before any of this stuff matters. Yeah. And that was kind of the moral for him of much of the, the final few episodes there. Um, who, who else haven't we talked about? Well, we, um, we briefly mentioned Harry Crane. Oh, uh, yes. The world's biggest douchebag. Yes. Uh, so Harry's funny because Harry was the guy that was never included to be partner, but always felt like, and somewhat rightfully so, that his division, he was forward thinking. Television was where things were at. Um, nobody really believed him. They kind of gave him his little hole in the wall. And, and it's funny because as the show progressed and Harry was in charge of this TV unit, his status with the company was bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where, yes, they okayed him buying a mainframe. He started, you know, hobnobbing with all these celebrity people, but he still had this giant chip on his shoulder that he wasn't partner, that he wasn't at the level that like, you know, cause at the beginning of the show, it was like him and Pete and Ken Cosgrove. And th- those guys were all kind of like in the same bucket, you know, when they when they came in. They were kind of like junior ad men or whatever. The, the three amigos, the kind of young upstarts. Yeah. You know, all kind of the jokesters to different levels, uh, different levels of geniality. And then to see his geniality just start to turn into just this mean-spirited grossness. Yeah. Um, and in the latter half of the show was... Not what I would have expected at all, but it was just like, it was a very clear trajectory. It, it never came out of nowhere. It was just, oh, this guy's funny. He's kind of a nice guy. Oh, that seemed a little bit over the line. And, oh, man, I wouldn't have gone there. And then just by the end with him propositioning Megan and then trying to, like, you know, co- not cover it up is the wrong term, but just kind of get out in front of it with Don. Yeah. was just so gross. Yeah. And Harry had a couple of those moments, but there was a moment where he thought they were talking about him and he goes into the board meeting and just starts ripping everybody a new one. And they all turn around like, what, what's your problem? Like, this had nothing to do with you. Like, he thought everything was always about him or if it wasn't, it should be. Um, <laughs> and, and so it was really kind of funny. So, you know, in the I always took it as Harry. Harry will kind of be Harry, you know, like he'll go to McCann. He'll, you know, he'll have his say. Um, he'll, you know, he'll, he, he's the kind of person that always like, he'll keep rising, but every, but, but nobody likes him. You oh, know? he'll be, he'll be very successful and alone. Yes. You know. And it's funny because he even, so he's got a wife and I think, I can't remember if it's two kids or one kid. I know he's at least got a kid, if not two. I don't remember to be honest. And, but he was always like trying to angle with other women, but yet this is going to sound weird. Cause I'm not going to explain this right. I know up front. Like, Don flaunts his infidelity almost openly. Like, not... He wouldn't rub it in Betty's face or in Megan's face, but he was never shy away from 
being like that until he hit that one stretch where he really tried to be a good person and, and dial it back. Um, and the same way almost even with Pete, like when Pete was, you know, Pete was just stupid. Like Pete, Pete got caught up in the moment and just did something really dumb. Um, but you know, he didn't really kind of, once he realized he was busted, it was like, okay, it is what it is. And Roger, same kind of thing. Harry always, I always felt like he would try and play that angle but he was, he would, like, he would stab you in the heart to make sure you didn't say anything and his wife got wind of him being unfaithful in his marriage. Where the rest of them would have been like, yeah, this sucks, but I guess it's time to pay the piper. You brought up Ken Cosgrove a few minutes ago. Yes. He's got one of the more interesting ends. Yes. In that, I don't even know, like, is he a villain? <laughs> and is he a villain I root for? Because like I think he the got latter. screwed over by the company so many times, he lost his damn eye. Yes, which you is know, insane. Trying to help this company, and they just kept screwing him over and screwing him over. And then he gets his revenge, and it's so sweet. Even when the revenge he's getting is against, in some cases, characters we like. You know, in some cases, characters we don't like. But in some cases, characters we like. And yet, I still. You know, even though I really couldn't tell you what he would be doing 10 years later or whatever, maybe just doing the same job or whatever, but I'm still happy for him. I'm still happy he yes. got his revenge. He might have lost an eye that he can never get back, but man, he got to stick it to SCP. Yeah, when he had that, when he became the, the head guy at Dow for the, you know, that would deal with the advertising, and he came in and was like, yeah, I'm not going to take your business, but you guys are going to pay for it. Like we're going to go out and have a nice steak dinner and you're going to wine and dine me and you're going to do everything you can to get my business. And I'm going to basically give you the finger after the end of it and just smile about it. When he went in there and just quit, you know, because he knew it was just, I don't know. Like you, it's like, I don't know if I should be rooting for this guy, but, but, but damn it. I'm, I'm going to I, I kind of feel like he's earned it at this it, point. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, that, cause, Cause I remember when that episode happened where he got his eye shot out I think it was you and me had a conversation of just being like, wait, did he really, are they really going to have him lose his eye? Like, that yes, just, it was so unexpected. And so just like, are they really going to have him wear an eye patch for the rest of the show? Yes, they are. Yes, they did. You know, and I think we got to see it once too, didn't we? Yeah. He took the pat. He had the patch off at one point. Yeah. I think he was at home with his wife or something. Yeah. 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 Um, do you think he ever goes back to writing? Do you think he writes like a tell all book about, uh, his revenge at CMP. I, I have a feeling that Kenny's one of those guys that it just takes a long time for him to get his comeuppance, or not his comeuppance, but his 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 just do, um, just like he did, you know. In this, I, I have a feeling that at some point he'll get his just do in the writing world, or he'll be like one of those people that he passes away and they find all of his manuscripts and like post mortem he just becomes like this, yes. you know, this famous writer. This what was it? Uh, was it Dickinson? Who, um, all of her writing, am I thinking the wrong person here now? My, my grasp of names is, as always, very terrible, but a very, very successful f uh, published poet, but not until after she died. Um, Could be, uh, yeah. Not my, so, not my strong suit. There either. are several people yelling at their iPods right now. Sorry, Kind of like the, the guy that wrote the, <laughs> to a limited degree, obviously, but like the guy that wrote the, the girl with the dragon tattoo, you know, it just like... Couldn't, couldn't get it sold while he was alive, and then, you know... Oh, Stig Larson, yeah. Yeah, Stig Larson. I, I don't know why that name is popping up in my head, but you yeah. have to... <laughs> Emily... Was Emily... Emily Dickinson? I mean, she was yeah. a, she was a, a poet, I think yeah. That, I think that was her story. I, I could be completely wrong and conflating her with someone else, and I apologize. Somebody will um, let us know. 
someone will let us know. But sp- um, speaking of writers, the other one, and I literally laughed out loud almost every time in the end um, when, when it would come on. But Lou Avery um, was such he was just really just this this grumpy guy that kind of he when when Don went away, he kind of took Don's place um, and took Don's job and just was really always felt like he was struggling to be in charge. And sometimes he would be a jerk just to be a jerk to assert his authority. Um, so in the end, when he ended up going out to California and then he, he sold his scripts to what was it, Hanna-Barbera for his character or something like that. And he calls up and he's like, I'm going out and I sold my script and you guys can go screw yourselves. See you later. And hangs up the phone and nobody cares. And I just, I <laughs> laughed so hard because, you know, Lou just had a way over inflated uh, sense of self-importance. And it's just like, it, it was just perfect that every, you know, on the other end of the phone, they're just like, well, whatever, you know? <laughs> well, and I think what's, what's kind of awesome about well, one of many things that's awesome about Mad Men, but you know, it's all set real world for the most part. So things like the, the Coke ad was really made by McCann Erickson. Now it wasn't written by Dom Draper or sure. Dick Whitman, you know, but it really was made by them. So at least what I take away from the Lou Avery thing is he might've sold his scripts, but it never got big and it never took off Yeah, because we get to see what he had been working on. I forget what the name of the, the strip was, um, at least one of his projects. And guess what? It's not a real thing. Never caught on in the real world. So in, at least my reading of it, he might have sold them, but he never went anywhere with that thing. Yeah. Kind of serves him right because he was kind of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Although I, I don't I don't think I hated him as much as a lot of people did. Like, I kind of felt bad that he was in this job that he hated only to help support him in through what he really wanted to be doing. But at the same time, a jerk is a jerk. Yeah. Now, two of the, I, I think that I have on my list to, to talk about and just the, the, to the show is um, we never really got real closer with Ted Chaw. I mean, I, I guess his whole deal was he finally got over Peggy. Peggy finally got over him. He went out to California for a little while. Um, and, and that was just kind of that. Well, um, one of the things I got from him and I might be just parroting other people. Cause I've, I've listened to a lot of people discuss, you know, the Mad Men finale and stuff. Um, I listen to a lot of TV podcasts, but he kind of got exactly what he wanted in a way at the end with him just being a cog in the wheel at McCann, just being another white shirt at, you know, in this room of, of 40 white shirts where he wasn't, he, he wasn't going to stick up, stick out too far to be knocked back down. He was just able to do his work that he enjoyed and was good at, but didn't have to run things, didn't have to make these hard decisions. You know, you could just be himself in a way. And you know, that's the last time we see him is in that at the boardroom when they're handing out the sandwiches, and he's just got a big smile on his face. And to me, he got a happy ending, even if it's not a very exciting ending. He got what he wanted. True. If even if it wasn't Peggy, you know. Yeah, that, that is true. Yeah, I could I could see that. Yeah, Ted, Ted. It's funny because Ted, from a brilliant standpoint, Ted and and Don were kind of on a on a par with each other. It, it's just Ted was just happy to just kind of get by. Like Ted was okay with just like you know I'm good just. Doing what I'm doing. I, I have attained a level of success. I don't need to strive for a higher level of a success. This job will, you know, support me for the rest of my life. You know, yeah. I don't need the headache of a managerial position. Yeah. You know, which oftentimes are more trouble than the worth headache wise. So, yeah. And then Jim Cutler, like he just kind of like went away. Like, like I, he got his buyout. And, yeah. You know, um, 
but we never really heard much much out of him again. Yeah, which I, I liked him on the show. I mean, I thought he played his role well. He, he he was kind of viewed as a villain by many of the characters. He was like the anti-Roger. But, but, you know, he was just trying to make the company successful. He wasn't trying to screw out, screw over people out of, like, you know, personal reasons, usually. I mean, like, yes, he was very anti-Don, but that's because Don had made a number of very public, very stupid decisions that were hurting the company financially, you know, and he was just trying to fix those. And, yes, he came across as petty a few times in that way, but at the same time, it, it always seemed like he was just trying to make smart decisions, and people resented him for that. Sure. Yeah. 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 Now, what was the name of the actor? Uh, who Harry Hamlin. Him? Harry Hamlin, yes. Yeah. Who, uh, it was just, you know, even if he was playing the semi-villain, just great on the oh, show. Yeah. Especially in those verbal spars uh, and spats with Roger. Were always quite fun. Yes. Yes. The, the two characters that I think kind of got short shrifted not not from a story perspective but just from a life perspective and it and it kind of gets back to a little bit of the racial component to the show and i I think one of the things the show did a good job of you know how realistic it was hard to say because i wasn't around at the time and you know were there firms that really were forward looking when it came to um how they treated women how they treated you know people of color those kind of things hard hard to say um, but at least their portrayal of Sterling Cooper and Price, you know, uh, Sterling Cooper, Cooper Draper Price was that, you know, th- that they were okay with trying to move the, that forward. I mean, they hired Dawn, um, as their first black employee as a secretary. Um, and she actually elevated herself. And, and when Joan kind of took her bump, uh, made Dawn head of, you know, personnel basically headed the secretarial pool and, and gave her like a management position, which was like this huge um, boost. And then Shirley came in and was one of like the co-secretaries for Roger, which I thought was really funny um, because he had, oh man, I forget his real secretary's, um, not his real secretary, his first secretary's name um, that he had forever. And she was just basically half incompetent. And and it was really it was really Shirley that was that was the one that was on the we're, wall. We're talking about the one who was ended up being Don's secretary towards the end, right? No, 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 no. That no, that was Meredith. Um, Meredith, Meredith. Okay, who was you're talking about? The dark haired. She was a little woman older, mid forties. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forget her name as well. They were all all the all the women who played the secretaries throughout the years were brilliant, but there were so many of them and so many names to remember that I have a hard time remembering them. But yes, his whole scam with the two secretaries yeah, was, was awesome. And then when they're kind of packing everything up and he's talking to Shirley and Roger is, and he's like, oh yeah, things are going to be great. You know, we're going to get over there, you know, this, this, and this. And Shirley's like, yeah, I'm not going. And Roger's like devastated. He's like, what do you, what do you mean you're not going? Like, I, I thought that was like, like the most colorblind moment from the show, like he couldn't fathom the fact that this person who he viewed as I, Roger was trying to hold on to whatever connections he could have from Sterling Cooper to go to McCann. And here's this, this black secretary who he adores and who he realizes is probably the best secretary he's ever had. And the fact that she really doesn't want to go over to McCann because it's, it's very white bread and she, she doesn't feel like in that large of an environment, you know, being, being one of the few, if there are any black workers at, at McCann, that she just wasn't comfortable in that environment. And I think she said her sister or her cousin or her brother or something like that owned some other business that she was basically going to go work for. And Roger was like, 
I'll double your salary. You know, he was like not taking no for an answer. And she was like, mm, sorry, not going to do it. And I think that was almost like a way to kind of snap back and say, this is how, you know, things were in that time that it wasn't, you know, they, they kind of showed SE and P being this kind of forward thinking, forward looking type of firm. Um, but, but that wasn't the reality of the world at large. And I just, right. like, and, and even they were racist and sexist and all these oh, things sure, but just sure. in comparison to like, you know, McCann, which we saw in that, in that final half season was <laughs> beyond the pale in terms of just despicable treatment oh, absolutely. Of, of any type of minority. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I don't blame her. You know, she had already blazed a trail at one place. She wasn't willing to do that again, you know, and, and start even lower and, right. you know, have to deal with even worse treatment. You know, she, she did her part, you know. Right. And she did it well. But I just, I, I mean, I, I it's like I felt sad with Roger. Like, Roger was sad and I was watching it and I was like, oh, man, that's terrible. Oh, um, yeah. You know, but that, but... But she didn't seem upset about it. And I thought that was kind of an interesting, that was an interesting thing. You know, it's just, it's, you know, that she just didn't seem upset about it. You know, that, that I, I just, I just found that somewhat fascinating. Um, as a single white, or not a single, as a, as a white man in his mid forties. Uh, I was going to say, wait, what happened? No, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Edit. As a white man in his mid forties, uh, you know, some of that obviously is is gonna is gonna be a little little hard to relate to directly, but but I, I was just like it was just it, to me it was just powerful. You know, it was it was a powerful moment. It wasn't, yeah. um, and I'm glad they addressed it. I, I'm glad they just didn't take it as just for granted that oh all this you know every you know like you said not everybody has a perfectly happy ending and and they were you know willing to to kind of to to take that on as well. So I th- I thought the. Uh, I, I I appreciated that. Um, we we brought her up just briefly by name before, but uh, I, I don't want to skip Meredith because yes. for such a minor character, she never failed to make me smile. Yes, like there was just something in her well-meaning dumbness, yet just enough competency to continue on there. That that was always so great, and she was always. They always found a way to make her surprising and not just in the, oh, that's a funny, dumb thing she said, but just the things she would be good at, the things she would be extra competent at, um, the ways she would go out of her way to help and oftentimes actually help, not just go out of her way to help and it blow up in her face or something. But she just she just seemed like overall out of everybody on the show, the most, you know, actively good person, probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, didn't have an ulterior motive, didn't, you know, like, wasn't angling to kind of get with Dawn. Dawn wasn't really angling to get with her. Like, it was just a true... Well, there was that one moment towards the end. Well, yes. Where she was basically like, so, we're, we're just gonna, like, get married, right? Because, like, that just seems like the logical thing to do in this situation. You know, I, I'm, I paraphrase, of course, yeah. but... Um, <laughs> which was just, just hilarious. Yeah. But, uh, so, Meredith... I think is the answer is my answer to the question I'm about to ask you as we wrap up our uh, Mad Men conversation for for good I guess um, which is kind of sad but it was a great show and if you haven't watched it and have still listened to all of this good on you but go check it out it's, it's a really fun show and it's not always fun but it's always a very good show and you can see the whole thing uh, if maybe not the last few episodes on Netflix and I'm sure they'll be there soon enough but Meredith is my answer to the question I'm about to ask you Russ which is Mad Men is done. Breaking Bad is done, but Breaking Bad spun off one of its minor characters into a show that is about them and is still in the same universe, but is very much its own thing. 
and is going down you know a different path and telling us a different story. If Mad Men were to spin off one of its characters into their own show that is not Mad Men and is not trying to be Mad Men, but is just a show set in that world, starring that actor as that same character doing something else, who would you want to see? And like I just said, mine would be Meredith, because we know so little about her, and she's so fun, that I would just like to see, even if it was like a half-hour sitcom, about her and her life after Sarah Cooper, and just, what is she up to? Man, that's tough. I... You know, the easy answer would be Sally. Um, because that, they, that would be my runner-up, for sure. Yeah, because they could almost do, like, a, for, for those of you who are familiar with the TV show MASH, they, there's a spinoff called Trapper John MD, where um, Trapper John was one of the guys in Korea. They It took place in the present day, and he was much older, so it kind of forwarded on. Um, it, you know, they didn't really... It wasn't a constant reference to MASH, but, but it was the same character that was put in the modern day as an older man, a doctor in a hospital. Um the only the only reason I hesitate to say Sally is because if you you push that forward and it's like okay what how did Sally turn out let's 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 kind of hone in on her life as an adult probably like in the eighties um, which would be cool but then it kind of gets into the inevitable well then they have to bring Don in or talk about Don or what happened you know and it's well, almost a good point yeah and it's almost like I'd rather you know I think they they close the book on him. And I think if they if they did that, it would it would almost like pull that in too much. So so that that's a tough one. Um, maybe Peggy, I, just because I like Elizabeth Olsen, and I I think like Peggy, uh, you know, a show with Peggy and Stan could be fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I would watch pretty much any spinoff, you know, of these characters. You know, I, I've heard people, you know, jokingly speculate, you know, like a Sal Bob Benson show um, with them as gay con men. Nice. You know, going out across the country and getting into trouble um, would be a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot of, but I, you're, you're absolutely right about, you know, any character that touches too closely on Don's story and presumably Don's future would be you know, a tricky one to touch on because we, we don't need any more of that story. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so it's it's you know it's that's a that's a tough one, uh, and you know, again, if you did, I mean, I love John Slattery. I mean, I could watch John Slattery's Roger Roger Sterling, like in a in a thirty minute or one hour sitcom, just in and of itself. Like I, to me, that if there's any complaint about I had about Mad Men as a whole, is there wasn't enough Roger Sterling, um, <laughs> because he was just gold every time he was on screen. Um, just his mannerism and his his way about him, uh, it's just it's it's priceless. But uh, but yeah, I think I, like I said, I think Sally could be interesting. And you know, maybe if it took place far enough in, they could just be like, oh, yep, you know, may, you know, maybe she lives far enough away that it's you know they could kind of get away with that, or maybe it's you know takes place at a time where he's passed away or something like that, where they you know just take that off the off the table completely. But I think it could be interesting to to kind of check in on. You know, given the the type of home life that Sally had, what kind of person she is, and and something tells me she's, and they hinted at this as well. She's she's way more like Don than she is like Betty. Right, right. Well, there's that great scene um, with him putting her on the bus. Yes. You know where where she she mouths off to him, and he tells her, you know, you are your your mother and me. Yes. You know, you have to get past those things. You know, the things you hate in us are the things you hate in yourself, um, which I think is true for many people and their parents. You know. Uh, the things you most hate about your parents are probably true about you as well, in some way. Um, it was just kind of a you know, a beautiful, beautiful moment 
um, as as she kind of heard that and and I, I heard it not just not just heard it but she listened to it I think yeah um, in that moment was nice um, but so that's our Mad Men discussion so let's talk about Better Call Saul now both of us uh, Russ are big for uh, making bad fans I think that's safe to say right absolutely what were your expectations for Better Call Saul if anything or or what were your what were the things you wanted to see and what were the things you definitely didn't want to see. If that makes it easier. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to see a sequel. Like, I didn't want to see necessarily what happened. I didn't want the focus of the show to be what happened to Saul Goodman after Breaking Bad. Um, so, you know, it was kind of fairly early on. They talked about it, this being a prequel, and I think that was smart. Um, it was a little more dramatic than I thought it was going to be. I, I thought it would be... Uh, skewing more towards comedy. And I don't know if that's because originally that one of the ideas they, they were pretty serious about was a 30 minute sitcom. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that just like subconsciously stuck in my head. So when the show started, I, I expected it to be a little more, um, a little more dramedy and, and not leaning more on the comedy side of that equation than on the drama side. And I think it leaned more on the drama side of that equation than on the comedy side of that equation. Yeah. I think, um, Better Call Saul kind of hit the target of um, kind of the balance of, of humor and drama that Breaking Bad was going for in its first season better than Breaking Bad did, um, if that makes any sense. Like, yeah, Breaking absolutely. Bad is a show I love, but I don't really love it until midway through season two. I really like it in season one and season two, but it's midway through season two where it becomes great. And then it's great from that moment till the end. Like there's, there's no, there's, there's no dry spots. Um, right. And better call Saul, I think, and I'm, I'm just kind of getting into it right now, but or that that's the wrong phrase. I'm just going to go straight into it, but I think it's not as good as Breaking Bad was at its height, but it's starting better than Breaking Bad did. If that makes any sense, like it's more consistent, um, more interesting, better quality show in season one than Breaking Bad was. But Breaking Bad was already really good. Like it's not like I'm putting yes. down Breaking Bad. It's just you know, sure. It, it got to say to such lofty heights that <laughs> you know, comparing anything against that, even you know, its its first few episodes is is probably unfair. But I was really happy with Better Call Saul. I I don't know what I was looking for. Either like I knew they said it was going to be at least to some extent a mix of things that happened before, during, and after Breaking Bad. Um, we we did we haven't seen anything that happened during yet. We've only seen one thing that happened after, um, kind of the framing device that starts the series, and everything else has been uh, before uh, six years before because it's uh, set in two thousand two with some flashbacks uh, when Breaking Bad starts in I believe two thousand eight. Um, but it it really surprised me. I, I don't know what it was that surprised me because I didn't expect the show to be bad. You know, it's the same people behind this that created the Saul Goodman character. Um, some of the main people that were behind, you know, Breaking Bad, not just the writers, but directors as well. Um, a number of the same actors and the new people that they were adding, people like Michael McKean, were people that you know are great actors. So, you know, yeah. there, there wasn't really like, oh man, they added uh, bad actor X that ruins everything, or they, you know, they're adding this X factor that I really don't want to see. Um, you know, it, it had all the ingredients to be a really good show, and surprise, surprise, it was a really good show that I'm excited about getting more of. Um, my dad even watched this. My dad has never watched any Breaking Bad, and I, I guess it was leading up to the finale of Better Call Saul, AMC aired all the previous episodes, like, all that day, and he asked me, he was like, oh, is that any good? Do you think I would enjoy that? And I was like, 
yeah, I guess. I mean, it's kind of strange to watch it without watching Breaking Bad first, but sure, you'd probably enjoy it. And he watched all of it and loved it. So you know, it, it's it's a really it's a really good show. I, there's no other way to put it. Um, yeah. But it's not Breaking Bad, and it's not trying to be Breaking Bad, which I quite enjoy, even though it has many of the same ingredients. You know, it's yeah. like Taco Bell. Everything has the same four ingredients, but that doesn't mean everything tastes identical. Exactly. And it's much better than Breaking ba- than, than Taco Bell and, and won't give you a, a gastrointestinal problems, hopefully. So. Yeah, yeah. Unlike Taco <laughs> Bell, Better Call Saul seems like a good idea before you watch it, and it's a good idea after you watch it. I cannot say the same with Taco Bell. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm liking their breakfast menu, but that's a completely separate topic. Um, yes. So, you know, you, you said what you wanted to see out of it. How far, and, and didn't want to see it, how far off the mark or on the mark do you think it was? Versus uh, what you wanted and didn't want. I, I think, now for me, I think it started off a little slow. I was really surprised that we got Tuco right off the bat. Like, I laughed so hard because I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting to see um, a character that tied into the, you know, to the early days of of Breaking Bad that we that we got. I mean, I we knew we were going to get Mike Ehrman Trout. Um, and so I think they did a really good job of because I didn't read about it or see it in previews. They did a really good job of keeping that under wraps. Um, I don't know if you knew he was going to show up before you actually saw it or if, if it leaked or anything like that. For the but. most part, I actually actively stayed away from behind the scenes stuff for Better Call Saul. Yeah, um, because I love Breaking Bad so much and loved being just so surprised by things I kind of wanted to as much as possible be able to replicate that with Better Call Saul and I think it worked out just fine like I I might have heard that he was I think I'd heard a familiar face will show up you know um, but I didn't know who it would be yeah I wouldn't I didn't expect to go and you know it's funny because right when I got to the point where I felt like they were giving Mike's character short shrift like I was like man I mean I get you know, that he, I, I thought it was cool he starts out as his parking lot attendant. And you're like, okay, I know there's more to this guy's story. And we know where he ends up. And so this is kind of this weird middle ground. But I kept waiting for them to do something with him and waiting and waiting. And, and maybe that's part of the genius of the show. It's like your anticipation builds up. And then when they did that episode where it was pretty much just like, this is how Mike got to be where he is. Five O would be the name of that episode. Yeah, yeah. One of the best episodes of television I saw last year, probably. It was awesome. It was like, just it, fantastic. It, it was incredible. That end mo- monologue with the, I broke my boy, is just, oh my gosh, that kills me. Yes. Yeah, I was like, wow. And just, you know, because you always knew there was something a little strange with the relationship, you know, with the, you know, you always knew he had the granddaughter and you always kind of had a feeling that he wasn't on great terms with the parents of the granddaughter. And then, you know, you find out what the story is behind that in this show. And and I thought it was really cool. Um, The whole bit with, I mean, let's start at the very beginning. The the fact that. Very good place to start. Yeah, the fact that his name isn't Saul Goodman, his name is Jimmy McGill. <laughs> Which we knew, but I right. was very surprised that this entire series, minus the one uh, you know, pre, uh, scene at the beginning, is all pre-Saul Goodman. You know, yeah. Aside from the fact that he did use that alias a few times in his younger days, like I was really surprised that we didn't hear him say Saul Goodman a single time as a, this is my name now in the present day. Yeah, 
But just the whole way he came up with that I thought was funny too. Where he's talking to that one guy. He's like, Saul. He's like, yeah, Saul good, man. And I was just like, oh, that yep. is genius. That That is literally what the joke was. So yeah. Yeah. You know, that that's how they came up with his name in the first place. Um, what did you think of the supporting cast? Like not just um, people we expected to see like Mike, but also Michael McKean or Kim or uh, McGill himself. Or no, Hamlin, I, I guess. Uh, Hamlin, yeah. Um, you, Harry Hamlin before talking about... Uh, Mad Men has thrown me off on the name there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I liked him a lot. I mean, you know, the whole thing with his brother, I thought was really, it, you know, one of the things with Saul is he, he's a pathetic character, right? I mean, even even in Breaking Bad, you could tell, like, this guy is kind of pathetic. Um, and they really kind of take it up to, like, an all-new level in this show where he's like, He's got to be his brother's caretaker. He's living and officing out of this room in the back of a, you know, of a nail salon. You know, he drives this crappy, crappy car. Um, you know, he's, he's, you know, trying to make his way being a public defender. Um, it's just like you really feel like, like in Breaking Bad, you didn't really feel bad for him because he was pretty slimy. Like yeah. he was, he was the typical and and pardon the pun, Jordan. So I, I don't take offense <laughs> to this. The typical like ambulance chasing, slimy, stereotypical like everything bad that people have to say about lawyers. That's Saul Goodman, right? Um, Only and, funny, and yes, and he's totally fine with it. Like he he wears that on on his sleeve. Like it's like, a stick. Yes, this is him trying to be something he's not. You know, just like he wants to be. A real lawyer. He wants to try and, you know, I mean, he wants to be rich and he wants to have all the nice things, but he's trying to go about it the, for the most part, the right way. I mean, there's always that, you know, we get into that whole slip and Jimmy thing. Um, there's always that kind of in the background, but for the most part, he's trying to do the right thing. Um, and he's trying to do the right thing the right way for the most yeah. part. Like he's trying to be a legitimate lawyer, legitimate businessman, a, you know, point A to point B to point C doing things the right way. He might be willing to cut some corners here and there, but he's not trying to be a con man. He's trying actively to move on from that part of his life. Yeah. And and oddly enough, it's the person who resents that part of his life the most who really pushes him back towards it. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, one of the other things I thought was great about this. So at the beginning of the season, you know, we find out that Hamlin. So it's 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 Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill. That's the name of the the firm. And so Howard Hamlin is kind of like the the guy, and we find out that that Jimmy's brother Chuck, who's played by Michael McKeon, has this strange disease where he's basically allergic to electromagnetic energy, and we pretty much get the impression that it's all in his head. Like something happened to him that made him snap, and 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 this happened. And throughout the you know the ten episodes, they kind of go through the whole bit where they basically prove that. It's all in his head, right? I mean, um, it is it is quote unquote a real thing. Uh, electromagnetic hypersensitivity is, I believe, sure, the sure, term. Sure. It is a real thing that really does affect people, but it, it's it's an acebic effect. It's it's a uh, you know a negative effect being take being you believe it to be true, and therefore it legitimately has real negative effects on your body, even though 
it's not doing it. It's just the fact that you believe that it's doing it literally does it to you. There's right. a lot of research on the subject. It's quite fascinating. Uh, there's a CGP Grey video called This Video Will Hurt, I believe, on YouTube. That's quite fascinating uh, if you're more interested in that subject, listeners. But uh, yes, the Nasebic effect and hyper uh, electromagnetic hypersensitivity is uh, what he suffers from. Yeah. And so we, you know, so we find out that you know Jimmy's basically taking care of his brother. He he can't function as a, as a as a person in society, uh, you know. At this point, his so brother can. His brother can. Right. Just <laughs> so right, and so Jimmy kind of, so he's basically being shut out of the firm. He's he's kind of put on this pittance of an allowance. They keep offering to throw him you know, a bone, which seems like a lot of money at the time, but it ends up being pennies compared to the, how much this firm is worth. And they really try and portray Howard Hamlin as the villain. Like, you really start to hate this guy. Like, really, really hate this guy. I mean, come on, um, Hamlin to go blue. Do what? I said, come on, Hamlin to go blue. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, Such a great and, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really not that bizarre of a concept to have a trademark color, but the, the way they portray it and the name of it just really sells it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Kim Wexler, who's like the the she's she has a position in the firm and it turns out that her and Jimmy, I get the impression that they dated for a while or at least, you know, had some sort of romantic relationship, whether it was casual or um, or or not. Right. Um, and so she kind of empathizes with him. Um, but then they kind of throw the twist in there that that, you know, the person that's been holding Jimmy down pretty much his whole life has been his brother. Um, and that Howard's really not the villain. Like, it's not Howard that's doing all this. He's being not, forced to do it. Right. It's not Howard that doesn't want to hire Jimmy when he first becomes a lawyer. It's not Howard that, you know, won't, you know, won't do all this stuff. It's Chuck that's telling Howard, you will do this or you won't do this. Um, and, and that just like, that's kind of the pivotal. It's almost like the, the breaking bad moment of, of the series. It's like oh, at yeah. the very, at the, at the very end, that's when, when, Jimmy, when Saul just is like, I can't believe this. You know, the, the the person I looked up to, the person that's bailed me out, the person that I've really, you know, once he kind of got in that bit of trouble at that point and, and, and Chuck came and bailed him out and then Jimmy got the job at the law firm and then got his law degree and did all this other, you know, did all this stuff. It was all to prove to Chuck that he could be a better person and to find out that Chuck has basically just been embarrassed of him and tried to keep him down all these years. Um, and he's he's thought it was Howard just crushes him. And at that point, he's like, you know what? I'm going to be slipping Jimmy and Jimmy McGill like I'm I'm you know, there's no the the game is rigged. So well, what's the thing he says to uh, Mike? Oh, I don't remember if it was on the phone or in person, but, you know, he had given the money back that, that he had taken as a bribe. And he, he talks to Mike and he says, what was that thing that stopped me from keeping the money that made me give the money back? Because I'm never listening to that part of myself again. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that was just, like, that was the moment. Like, even though, like, like we said, he, he doesn't become Saul Goodman, you know, in season one. Like, that's the moment he becomes Saul Goodman. Like, even, yes. if, even if he hasn't taken that name yet. And it's, it feels so earned. And I can't stress that enough because, like, Chuck is such a jerk. You know? Yes. You know, and, and I get it. He went through a lot of trouble with his brother and his, you know, with Jimmy specifically. Jimmy was a screw up. Jimmy did all these things, but Chuck is a lawyer. Chuck is a smart guy. 
Chuck is a, from what we can see, even with his mental issues, a very reasonable, you know, critically thinking person. And the sheer fact that he can't look at what Jimmy has done with, you know, getting a law degree and passing the bar, two very difficult things, you know, I say as a person who has failed the bar multiple times, you know, yeah, it was the University of American Samoa or whatever, and yeah, he, you know, he didn't go to, you know, the greatest law school, but at least in my head, like, he did these things. Like, even if it's him faking it, like, let's say it's all just a new big scam, that much work being put into it, he deserves a level of respect. And even yeah. if it's a low-level job at this law firm, to, you know, he, he deserves something from the amount of just sheer work he would have had to put into all this, you know, on top of his full-time job there in the mailroom, that to have his brother hold him down for years after that is just such a jerk move. It just, I can't stress how awful that made me feel for Jimmy when that came out uh, of, of what Chuck had done all those years. And it was a great twist because, again, it's it's here you feel sympathetic for this character because he's going through something and you're pretty sure it's it's psychosomatic. It's not, you know, it's it's it, he's not really he's not really sensitive to this, you know, electromagnetic field like so something happened to him. Um, obviously, that's that's causing him to go through this. And and then to turn out that, you know, he's really been the one keeping him down it's just like it was it was really really well done and and i mean not just keeping him down but keeping him down while his brother is basically waiting on his beck and call and waiting on him and you know just for i I don't know if they've said how long he's been out of the office i i don't actually remember off the top of my head but for months and months and months like putting up with his brother's condition and not just putting up with but actively caring for him on top of his full-time job as he's you know trying to scrape the other pennies to get by like oh it just compounds the level of of jerkness that uh, that Chuck <laughs> Chuck has attained you know yeah it, it's it's really something especially you know, after we've seen him go through so many things, like I think casting Michael McKean in that role was a brilliant move because you know Michael McKean's been in you know tons and tons of things over the years, and we've seen him play the nice guy, we've seen him play the slimy jerk, we've seen him play everything in between. He's a fantastic actor, and to have him be able to play both ends of the spectrum in this role and for such a long time during the first season beneath our noses, like you know, different people called that it might be him, you know, an episode or two before it was revealed that was really the bad guy. But even if you called it, like, having him play such a sympathetic role in the beginning and have it turn so suddenly right there towards the end was a brilliant casting decision, but also a brilliant acting job from uh, from Mr. McKean there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and especially because um, the way you, you brought this up before, but, you know, with Hamlin... And I can't remember the name of the actor who plays uh, uh, Patrick. Patrick Fabian. Patrick Fabian. I I must uh, commend him just as equally because he pulled off, um, you know, scumbag so well in the beginning. Yet once it was revealed that he was actually a nice guy who kind of liked Jimmy and and really felt bad about this, I totally bought it. And it wasn't just because of Michael McKean, um, you know, really selling the fact that he was the jerk, like. Hamlin also played that so well where once it was revealed, it was like, oh yeah, I guess really he, he hasn't done anything that cold 
personally to Jimmy. No, you know, one on one, like I just don't like you. He has been this for the most part nice guy who's <laughs> dealing with a, you know kind of a crazy weirdo in Jimmy, um, who's doing these things like the, like the billboard stunt and stuff. You know. It, that worked out really well too, and I want to see more of him next season. Like I hope, I hope he wasn't just a season one character who has served his purpose because he has to some extent. But I want to see more of him and how he um, plays into what Jimmy became. Yeah, I, I expect I expect him to be back. I don't expect that to be just a one off thing. Right. Uh, what about Kim? I mean, we we talked about her briefly, but I, I liked her quite a bit. She was a very um, Oh, she's a wild card, I guess, in terms of the Breaking Bad mythology in that I don't think we had ever heard of her in Breaking Bad. She's never mentioned. Um, her her relationship with Jimmy is very ambiguous to, to an extent. I mean, you, you talked yeah. about that before, but, you know, there are definitely feelings between them or have been feelings between them over the years that seem to have waxed and waned and, and um, on both sides, which is very interesting. This is not just... You know the the guy who's in love with the beautiful woman and she doesn't really care. There, there's definite feelings between both of them that have waxed and waned, which is something you don't see very often in quite this way, which I liked. Yeah, and you, you could tell she actually really has feelings for Jimmy because to be able to cross her boss, cross her firm, to do things that would, you know, when it when they get into the whole thing with the cattlemen's, you know, and and you know, Jimmy tries to represent the cattlemen's who. Um, the, the Mr. Kettleman, Craig Kettleman was, um, an accountant for the county or the city or something like that. And, and, um, embezzled some money, you know, and then she's kind of like feeding information to Jimmy and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of Jimmy's doing some kind of underhanded things, um, for the, for, for what he thinks are the right reasons, uh, and kind of gets in the middle of, of, of some stuff, you know, she, she feels conflicted so i wonder sometimes if because she didn't show up in breaking bad at all if maybe that's like the straw that breaks the camel's back for him like if she turns on him or if she kind of forsakes him that that's that's it like you know okay i can handle my brother you know going back on me i can handle you know all these random people and and stuff like that but i wonder if through his own doing or or whatever that she you know, she finally turns on him and that's, that's like it. Oh, that could be interesting. Yeah. And that's the thing because we have literally no idea where, where she ends up, you know, is she dead? Did she move? Did she, you know, say, screw you? Did she screw him over? Like what happened? Like, could she show up in the future in, uh, where, where is he working at the Cinnabon? Is that Illinois or no, no, no. Uh, it's, I want to say Colorado or, Something like Idaho that. or something like that. I, I, Maybe Boise or Salt Lake City or something like that. Like somewhere west. Uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, yes, Omaha. Yeah, that's where the headquarters <laughs> I, I, of uh, Cinnabon is. Yeah. Is it really? I did, I did not know that. Hey, I learned something I, today. I, I believe that's 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 the case. Um, which <laughs> now that we've seen Ant Man, makes me think uh, Baskin Robbins always finds out. Does uh, does Cinnabon work the same way? Um, but yeah, like could she show up there in the future? in some way like that could be an interesting way to end the show i guess um you know hopefully the show lasts for many years and is awesome but you know just looking forward like we we know nothing about what happens to her but i like her relationship with him because it is so complex and because it is so um 
so unclear not only what it is, but what it used to be and what it will be, yet at the same time very engaging, and they have a very good chemistry um, that, that conveys the confusion between them uh, that I like quite a bit. Uh, you brought up the Kettleman's, though. <laughs> um, I think early on in the show, we you know we didn't know was this going to be like a a humorous uh, you know Law and Order? Is this going to be a case of the week type thing? You know, are the the Kettleman's are here in episode one? But I don't think we could have predicted that they would be such an integral part of season one, um, and so hilarious. Like Betsy Kettleman, yes, is, and I think they've said for sure she'll be back in season two. It's just, just great. Like, so funny, so conniving, so um, entitled. Um, she, she's kind of the Walter White of season one of Better Call Saul here. But just, <laughs> you know, it's this bizarre combination of conniving and entitled, inept, but yet very good at what she's doing at the same time. Like, she has these huge blinders on, yet at the same time, they were able to scam the, the county for $1.6 million or whatever it was. Yeah. You yeah. know, which I guess that was her husband who was able to was able to pull it off, but she had the idea. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just her her push and pull with, with um, Jimmy in particular, but also her husband and the other people like Kim was just hilarious. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I Yeah, I, I thought, like you did, I thought they'd kind of show up and then once they were being represented, once you find out that they were being rep- represented by, by um, HHM, you know, you thought, okay, that that's that's where that's going, and and for it to kind of linger on, and then it kind of, you know, caused Jimmy to get involved in something, a lot more, a lot more than he, I think, he originally thought it would, but, um, and then you know, kind of the whole bit with Nacho, you know, and then and then Tuco, you know, that that whole thing coming in there, um. But yeah, I'm just like like I said, they it did a good job over the over the ten episodes of kind of setting the table for um, for where this is going to go because it's I mean they could they could do they could go in a lot of different directions um, with the second season uh, and so I'm really curious to see to, to you know to see how this works and I, I know there's been hints that we could see more of the future in or more of the present I should say in further seasons like it that you know we may go two or three episodes where it takes place in the in the you know present day um that hasn't been confirmed but but i i, I did remember hearing something about that right um what did you think of the naming conventions of of the episodes you know because breaking bad did that in the past with like you know 747 down over uh, uh abq and different like hidden things or like rhyming episodes, like you'd have uh, half measures and full measures. What did you think of this season, with with the exception of one episode, all having the O titles? Uh, Hero, Marco, some others. I don't have them all in front of me. <laughs> Uno was episode one. Miho was episode two. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, to be honest with you, I didn't really pay that much attention to the episode names, which normally it's which is funny because normally I do. Um, but I didn't really notice that, um, with this one. Yeah. They're, they're all, they all end with the sound. O. you know, Uno, Miho, Nacho, Hero, except for episode five, Alpine Shepherd Boy. And I was, I was trying to figure out like as the show went on, cause you know, five O, bingo, all these titles. I was like, man, I know how Breaking Bad works. They've got to be trying to tell us something. What is it in this episode five that is different that it doesn't have that O title. What is going to be important about Alpine Shepherd Boy? Turned out they wanted, I looked this up today, they wanted to name it 
um, Jello, but they couldn't get the rights to call it Jello at the last uh-huh. minute. So that's why I got the other name. Um, but I thought that was interesting. But but that brings us into kind of the overarching legal plot of the season, aside from the Kettleman's. I'm curious what you, as a legal layperson, no offense, but thought of the the um, the lawsuit angle of the second half of the season. Like, I found it really interesting, but I don't know how a person who doesn't have a legal background would think about that. Like, was it interesting to you? Which lawsuit specifically? With, with overcharging the um, the elderly. Oh folks. yeah 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 yeah. I thought I thought it was fine. I, you know, again he found an angle and at first you think he's looking to exploit it. And in all reality, he's, he's really not, he's trying to, it's like, okay, if I'm going to have to, if I'm going to have to work at this, let me at least find a niche and, and jump on that. And so then when he, you know, he finds that I, 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 you know, it made sense to me. I mean, it okay. all, it, it totally made sense. Yeah. Cool. Cause I, I just wonder what things like that, like that's a, it's not a particularly exciting legal case, but it's an interesting no. one from a legal perspective. That, that I thought it was interesting that they would hinge a part of the season on that type of case. Because um, I, I liked his, his interactions with um, with Elder Law and with, with the old folks at the old folks' home. I just found that very... It was an interesting place to put him. Yeah. you know, And especially because I think we see him at an old folks' home a couple times with Hector Salamanca, don't we? In, in Breaking Bad? Doesn't he visit uh, him there at least once or twice? I know other I, people do. I don't remember that he visited Hector in... In Breaking Bad, I, think he, I mean, I might might be misremembering that, but um, it, you know, in there he you know he's playing bingo, he's helping the old folks, you know, just getting you know regular things done. And you're right; it seems like he's trying to exploit them, but then he gets those few moments of like when the old lady can't pay at that very moment, and he's like, oh, you know, he doesn't want to, but he's like, okay, you know, don't worry about it right now; we'll take care of it later. And that yeah. brings him into the case. It was nice to see him, you know, see him really strive to help. You know, the helpless, you know, in this case, he is trying to be a good person, you know, on all these different levels. Um, and to see that relationship, you know, grow and change over the season as he's becoming more and more depressed until that monologue at the bingo machine with Cincinnati sunroof, which may be, you know, it, it's close with that one from Mike in, a, in the episode 5 uh, with the, I Broke My Boy, but that they're both angling for best monologues in the season. I'd say it's it's those yeah. two and his monologue with Chuck. It's not really so much of a monologue, but it's mostly a monologue um, where he confronts him um, over over what he had done and gets it gets him to admit to uh, to screwing him over all these years. Yeah. But the the number of turns in that that monologue at at the bingo table with <laughs> with the Cincinnati Sunroof yes. of just dark to depressing and pathetic to dark, to even darker, to hilarious, and, and then back to dark was just, it, it was probably like a five-minute monologue, right? Like, it felt like it went on oh, forever, yeah. but in a good yeah, way. It, yeah, it went on, yeah. And then just the reaction from the people in the, you know, the, the old folks that are playing, they're just like, what, what, what is this guy, like, what? What is he doing? What is he doing? What the is, next number? What, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's such a brilliant monologue. And it was, and not only was it a brilliant monologue for the moment and, and for, you know, showing where his headspace was, but it, that, that was also where we got our information on his backstory. Like we knew he had yes. been arrested. We knew, you know, he might be put on a sex offenders list, but we had no idea why. And it's Saul. So it could be any number of reasons, but to find out what it was, 
uh, was so hilariously dark. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and just, you know, I, I like that it wasn't on purpose. Like, he wasn't trying to do something, you know, perverted, if you will. Um, but that, that it ended up being that, and, you know, completely outside of his knowledge, was so perfect. You know, hoisted on his own petard. Yes. We talked about Mike, and this was as much of a origin story for Mike as it was for uh, for Saw, as, as we talked about. But more so than I expected. Like, you, you talked about how we didn't get a lot of Mike in the beginning. Then we got 5-0. Great monologue, great episode, just start to finish. But then we also start to get, like, this origin story for Mike as the Mike we saw in Breaking Bad. Like, Mike, who is this elderly secret agent, you know, yes. for lack of a better term. Yes. Um, you know, with him, you know, setting up these connections with, like, the the veterinarian. Um, yes. Which is, you know, out of nowhere, but at the same time kind of awesome, and I want to see more of that. Him beating up Trevor from Grand Theft Auto V, Stephen Ogg, um, <laughs> in that one episode was brilliant, and, you know, and him helping the... the uh, another. There's a lot of proto-Walter White in this season, um, I think on purpose, but that the guy was selling the pills. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. What, what did you think of his trajectory through the season? Was it enough in retrospect? Because you were saying you wanted more you know, towards the beginning I, there. You didn't think it was going to be so strong. No, I, I think because of where it went and then they went full bore, I think it was fine. I think it, it's one of those things that you build up to the anticipation and then it delivers, right? So... I was like, man, I, I want more Mike. I want more Mike. And then we get it. And then it's, it's totally satisfying. Um, and it, and it, it's almost like if they would have spread that out through the season more, then it maybe wouldn't have been as impactful. Like to push it towards the back half of the season and then to make it as prominent as it was, I think that really, that really sold me on it. If that, if that makes sense. No, um, I, I totally get what you're saying. And, and I like how they brought them together. Like it wasn't yeah. really a partnership. It was very reluctant. They didn't really like each other, but they both had skills the other one needed. Um, kind of an odd couple, but not so not so rote and trite as that, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was just more of a, sometimes you have to work with people you don't really like. <laughs> but this yeah. one was, happened to be really funny and really effective. I think one of the things that maybe, like if you give this a second watch, I think it, it it's not going to have that impact. You know, because you know what's coming. So... You know, if you go back and rewatch, say, season one before season two starts and you're just like, you know, waiting for the mic, waiting for the mic and then you get it and then it, and it happens, you've it, it's not going to have that same impact as it did the first watch through. I mean, which, you know, obviously nothing can. But um, I, I'm curious because I, I probably will rewatch this before season two shows up um, and I'll be curious to see if I if I have the same feeling or just knowing what's coming um you know, it, it won't it won't seem to bother me as much. I think it holds up pretty well because, like, when my dad was rewatching it, or not when my dad was watching it, like right before the finale aired, I rewatched a lot of bits with him, and it still held you know pretty much the same effect. Um, pacing wise, it might be interesting because, like I said, I didn't watch every little bit. Um, and as you, you know, you have that anticipation for Mike, that might not work as well. I don't know, but I, mean, I think it was really solid overall. Like it had like just a lot of really memorable things and memorable in a completely different way from Breaking Bad. Like, um, a scene we didn't talk about at all, but the, him in the dumpster. Oh yeah. Which yeah, is just yeah. yes. so horrifyingly gross. Yes. Um, yes. It's, and, and, and for it all to be a joke at the end was so brilliant. 
um, with him just finding, you know, it was everything that he needed was in the recycling bin, 10 yep. feet to the side. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I mean, phone, he gets, you know, like, you know, with, at the and, opera, you know, whatever. But that, you know, again, you know, he pulls all these papers and he starts putting this all together. And then Chuck kind of has that moment, I think, where, and this is before we realized Chuck was doing what he's doing. I you almost you're watching it and you're like this is how he's going to bring Chuck back into the real world like he's going to get involved with this and feel like he has some control and maybe whatever whatever trauma that he went through that that gave him this condition um, this might be his way out of it and I think even he saw like at first it's like you you know in retrospect it was like oh here you know Jimmy's doing something else and then he finds that Jimmy was really on the right track with this thing I th- I thought it was you know you felt like they were starting to bond and just as they were starting to bond and maybe heal that relationship, maybe get, get Chuck to trust him again is when this big secret comes out. And that's when, you know, that, that that's when Jimmy is just like, okay, I'm done with you. And even more damning towards Chuck, like he was still screwing him over at that moment. You know, yes. You know, actively even seeing his brother working so hard and staying up through the nights and, you know, diving through trash to get this like, Oh, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Um, what do you want to see out of season two or do you just want them to do whatever they're doing and it'll be fine? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I can't, I can't even say, you know, part of it is if you start, if, if you start speculating too much, it starts to get too close, I think, to breaking bad. And, you know, this conceivably is a show that would probably take, you know, this is probably another four or five season you know provided that the ratings are like they are you know they'll, they'll probably get at least four or five seasons out of this if not six um so i think you have to take it slow um uh, unless they decide to just do a total time jump and you know the back half of the show becomes the present day you know mm. i mean th- th- there's no talent but uh i'm okay with the slow burn you know i'm okay with seeing you know the ramifications of season one how it affects him in season two like i i definitely want to see more of how he reacts to all these people and uh and basically starts to either prove them wrong or prove them right um and 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 start you know becoming you know get closer to it and then for mike i get the feeling that the two of them are going to become closer in season two that we're going to get more mike and jimmy in season two than we did in season one and and i think we're going to start to see seeds being sown of Mike um, getting to the point where, you know, like he's working for um, Gus uh, and stuff. Gus. Yeah. Where he's working for Gus in, in Breaking Bad. Now, here's a question for you. In ter- now, we only have the first season, so let's just take the first season on its own. How do you feel it stacks up against other prequels? Because I got to say, I think this is one of the best prequels I've ever seen. In terms of, like, it stands on its own. Like, my dad was able to enjoy this just fine. The only thing I told him before the show is, hey, the first scene is kind of weird because it takes place years later. And <laughs> it's black and white and weird and green. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, but aside from that, like, you could totally watch this just as its own thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think it holds up very well. I, I think it doesn't lean, it doesn't lean too heavy on... Uh, what's come before it which is actually what comes after it you know there could be a lot of and we may get a little more of that as the show goes on but i mean other than tuco showing up uh, you know I, I can't even say mike because mike was going to be part of the show from from jump right uh, so so that you know they really didn't lean on 
uh, on that. You know, we don't see, um, you know, somebody driving uh, Walter White's car, you know, around. You know, we don't see that 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 Aztec or whatever it is that you know. I mean, right. We don't see, you know, some some uh, high school kid yelling, you, you know, yo bitch everywhere. So. <laughs> I think those things are easy to lean on. I, I think they could have easily, you know, we don't see Hank, you know, running around in his DAA bust or something. You know, I think I think some of this stuff would have been easy to lean on. And, you know, like I said, whether time goes by and they start to do that, some of that more remains to be seen. But at least from from the get go, they basically they they really tried to say this is a different show. This is. This is something, like you said, that you can you could have not seen Breaking Bad and be able to jump in and not feel like you're missing the end joke. And I think that's what's important with doing that. I mean, I, I think sometimes it's just like these things have to feel so connected to to you know to what's come before it that it almost becomes uh, you know you almost feel like them winking and nodding at you as you're watching it, or or just like slowly grinding towards the inevitable. Like, yeah. come on, just make him Darth Vader already. We know that's where he ends up. You know, like that's right. the interesting part. Like, all this is interesting in its own right, which I think is partly because it's focusing on a secondary character, and it's not, you know, the story of Walter White teaching high school chemistry four years before Breaking Bad. Because guess what? That's not interesting. Yeah, you know, and for and for the most part, he is who he is in Breaking Bad. Like, they make no. You know, they there's no bones about it. I mean, he starts off when they do the whole slip and Jimmy thing, and then when he kind of has this moment where he takes off and he goes back to Chicago, and they do the slip and Jimmy thing again. With Marco and stuff. Who was great, by the way. Like, yeah, Marco yeah. didn't get a big role, but he was very important, and I really like the actor and what they did with him. Yeah. So, given that they that they did, I mean, it's not like one of those where like he was this perfect clean cut, you know, guy until something happened and then he became Saul Goodman. No, he, the, 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 the roots of Saul Goodman were always there. It's just something happened to make him just finally just ditch whatever he had left of, of what, you know, of, of what he tried to be in, in Jimmy McGill. So I think that takes a little bit of the pressure off. Like you don't feel like you're waiting for that turn. Um, because you, you, you know, it's almost like he started. He started as Saul. He became Jimmy, and then he becomes Saul again. So it's all. It's and then in between, again, when he scams the billboard thing, it's mm. like you know that's a Saul Goodman thing to do. When he goes back around and and gets the money from the Kettleman's, that's a that's a Saul Goodman thing. You know, it's they they're not just trying to make him be this clean cut. You know. Um, purebred kind of person, and then and then something bad happens to him. So he, he I doesn't think, break bad. He just kind of bends yeah. for a long period of time. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like he finally embraces it. You know, like I said, he just finally says, "Okay, I'm ditching all this old stuff." And and again, you know that, that I don't think it's so dramatic. You know what happens because it, because again, there's so, the seeds are there. Right. Okay. Last question. Taking the show as what it is right now, just season one. Somebody comes up to you, and this may be something our listeners could consider as well. They haven't seen Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. They haven't seen either one of them. Would you recommend that they watch Breaking Bad and then Better Call Saul? Or Better Call Saul and then Breaking Bad? Or do you not think it matters whatsoever and either one could be enjoyed on its own before or after the other and just go with it? Uh, if... If they existed, if if Better Call Saul was a done deal, 
Um, like like it it had its run. I probably would recommend watching that first and then Breaking Bad. Really? But, okay. Yeah, but given that we only have one season, I would tell people watch Breaking Bad first, then go back and watch Better Call Saul, and then be able to catch up for you know whatever season two or whatnot. Um, just just because I you know watching one season on its own and then skipping forward to watch Breaking Bad, I think I don't think it really buys you that much. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think for me right now, I would totally be fine with telling somebody to watch just one or the other. Like, it, it, if they were, like, for instance, like my dad, not interested in Breaking Bad, but, you know, thought that the commercials for, for Better Call Saul looked interesting, I would have no problem whatsoever recommending people watch one or the other or both. Or They're both really good shows. Breaking Bad becomes fantastic and great, but they're both really good from the get-go. Um, and, and like I said before, I think this one's a little bit stronger at the beginning uh, because they had had so many years to develop this character and really get a feel for you know who he was. Um, but uh, as as spinoffs go, as prequels go, I really couldn't be happier with with Better Call Saul. And uh, hopefully, you know, in a year or two, we come back to this. Um, it'll it'll have become it'll have reached the level of greatness that Breaking Bad did as well, or at least hasn't gone off the deep end and, and remains really really good. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Uh, the only other thing, um, since we we tend to talk about other AMC shows and we're we're long as it is, so I, I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna go into any kind of detail on this. Um, but uh, one of the AMC shows that I've come to adore, we talked about this in our last LOD episode, actually, is Halt and Catch Fire, whose uh, second season just ended. And again, I know this is a tough sell. Um, for the network, the ratings aren't particularly good. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe foreign markets, it does okay. And maybe on Netflix, they're just really happy with it. Um, but it, it's eighties nostalgia. It takes place 83, 85. Um, it's, it's about the early days of computers, uh, and the people involved in trying to kind of make their way, uh, in, in this, uh, environment. And I really, um, I really enjoy that show. I mean, it, it, the characters are very, very interesting. Seasons one and two are very, very different shows um, in a good way. You don't feel like you're just kind of watching the same thing. I don't know if it's going to get a season three. The way it ended, I, you know, it's fine if it doesn't. Um, but I really hope it does because I, I think it's one of those shows that I think down the road people are going to are going to find this show and think a lot higher of it than than maybe they do now. Yeah, I watched all of season one, really enjoyed it. I mean, it you know starts a little bit shaky, but starts to find its feet about halfway through and, and ends really strong. And then life got in the way, and I only got to watch the first episode of season two, but I'll eventually catch up. And I was really happy, and from everything I heard, it just got better uh, and better and really knew what it was going for in season two more than it did in season one. Um, so I would also recommend it, even though I haven't seen all of it. Um, but hopefully that comes back as well. Maybe, maybe we'll have to call these segments... Halt and Better Call or something like that. I don't know what we call them, but uh. yeah, uh, better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll we'll think of something punny. Uh, Break and catch them. fire. I don't know. Break and catch fire. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the other one, the one of them I had, I haven't had. I've have tried to get into, and I haven't really succeeded very much. Is Turn. I'm pretty sure my dad watches that, and I've never watched a single episode, even though I like a ton of actors in it. For whatever reason, I just have no interest in watching it. And I'm a history buff, and I've I, it's not bad. It's just a little dull. I've watched the first couple few episodes, and I just haven't gone back to it. I think it's season two just ended, uh, or 
or getting ready to start. I can't remember which. Um, but that's another another AMC. Um, and that deal. railroad show is in like season four or five now, I think. And I have this is the final season, like, Hell on Wheels. Yeah, Hell on Wheels. Yeah, and that's pretty good. I, I it's another one. It's just a kind of in my two read piles, as it were. I watched about halfway through season one, and it's 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 a little bit of a slow burn as well, but it's it's actually pretty good. I'm I, I I'll probably actually finish that out. Um, I know it's in its final season, and then uh, a couple weeks there's a little show called. Uh, Fear of the Walking Dead that's going to be premiering. Yeah, have you heard anything about that? Does it look any good? I don't know. A few things, you know, <laughs> here and there. Um, I'm I'm actually looking very forward to this. Um, I I kind of fell off the radar on Walking Dead. I, I kind of I had a I moved. I kind of had a lot of um, crazy personal stuff going on. So I I didn't actually I still haven't actually finished watching the second half of season six, season five of Walking Dead. Um, so I plan on getting caught up. I definitely am in for Fear of the Walking Dead. So I should be back to being somewhat more or less regular on WDTV moving forward. So well, that makes us very happy. <laughs> yeah, no, we've got a, you know, one of the other things we want to do, and I'm hoping we could sneak it in before. If we can't sneak it in before Fear of the Walking Dead, then I think for sure we will sneak it in between Fear of the Walking Dead and The Walking Dead. Um, because Fear of the Walking Dead is only going to have six episodes, just like The Walking Dead did its first season. Um, we'll do All Out War Part Two, which is kind of our dissection of the uh, of the comic of of the the actual comic book for The Walking Dead. So right, right. So that's pretty much it, folks. Uh, you can of course send us an email wdtv at hhwlod.com and all the the normal rigmarole. I don't have the document in front of me at the moment because this is kind of a weird one-off episode or three-off, I guess, since this is part three. But we hope you enjoyed uh, our discussion of Mad Men and Better Call Saul. And of course, like we said at the beginning, if you enjoyed this conversation and wanted to go back to um, previous conversations we had about that, check out Walking Dead TV episodes twenty-one and ninety-four. And then, of course, if you go to hhwlod.com and check out the main uh, HHWLOD feed, you can check out our episodes of Los Podcast Hermanos, which was eight or nine episodes, but that looked at the final uh, half season of Breaking Bad, um, with uh, the same cast you hear on here, plus Frank A. Rencon and some other folks, so it was a lot of fun there as well. But, uh, so until there's no more room in hell and the dead walk the earth, remember, better call Saul. Nice. The moon belongs to everyone The best things in life are free uh, Quick question, who here knows what a Chicago sunroof is? Anybody? You, sir? No? Okay. True story. Uh, back home, uh, there was this guy named Chet. Now, Chet was a real asshole. He might have owed me some money. He might have slept with my wife before she became my ex-wife. The details don't matter. Suffice it to say, I was wronged. All right, so one summer evening, I was out having a few drinks, one or two, maybe three. <laughs> you get the picture. And uh, who do I see? Chet. He drove up and he double parked outside of Dairy Queen and went in to get some soft serve. Now, Chet drove, and this will give you an idea of exactly what kind of a douchebag this guy was. Drove a white pearlescent BMW 7 Series with a white leather interior. <laughs> so I saw that thing and I had, I'd had a few, like I said. And uh, 
I climbed up top, and I may have defecated uh, through the sunroof. Not my finest hour, I'll grant you that. But that's what a Chicago sunroof is, now you know. <laughs> it's a real thing, I didn't make it up. I'm not the first person to do it, there's a name for it. Guy wanted some soft serve, I gave him some soft serve. I did not know that his children were in the back seat. There was a level of tint on the windows that I'll maintain to this day was not legal in an Illinois licensed vehicle. But somehow, that's on me, I guess. Are you out of your mind? You gave me 20 ideas and I picked out one of them that was a kernel that became that commercial. So you remember? I do. It was something about a cowboy. Congratulations. No, it was something about a kid locked in a closet because his mother was making him wait for the floor to dry, which is basically the whole commercial. It's a kernel. Which you changed just enough so that it was yours. I changed it into a commercial. What, are we going to shoot him in the dark in the closet? That's the way it works. There are no credits on commercials. But you got the Clio. It's your job. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you. That's what the money is for. You're young, you will get your recognition. And honestly, it is absolutely ridiculous to be two years into your career and counting your ideas. Everything to you is an opportunity. And you should be thanking me every morning when you wake up, along with Jesus, for giving you another day. You're goddamn right.